Presbyterian Church is now called to order. Let's pray together. Our Father, we pray at the beginning of every worship that we would know your presence, that we would speak to you and hear you speak to us in all reverence and holiness. Our Father, prior to our worship this morning, your church is gathered to conduct business. And we ask your hand of blessing upon this. This is a day that you've brought to be. We thank you for the past that brings blessing to this day. And as we look to the future, we know that your grace and your providence that has brought us safe thus far will take us home. Bless this time, Father. Hallowed. May it not be a thanksgiving to John Sartiel, but may it be a thanksgiving to you for your goodness to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. First order of business in any congregational meeting is to elect a clerk. And in our congregational meetings at Christ Presbyterian Church, I've always given you a hint right at the beginning that Bill Ray is clerk of the session and he knows how to do the job. Now the floor is open for nominations for clerk. <laughs> So, so <clears throat> is there uh, a motion that the nomination cease? Yes. All right. Then Bill is elected by acclamation. <laughs> Thank you. And he will now come and present. There's, there's congregational meeting always has to uh, address the issue for why it's been called. And everyone knows why this one has been called, and Bill has come to present it. Bill? God's marvelous and mysterious providence, the session of Christ Presbyterian Church with heavy hearts, but much more
this Sunday, today, and the next two Sundays, three Sundays in total, I want to talk with you from Scripture. I want us to think together from Scripture about what makes a great church. What should we and what do we aspire to be? The dynamic, life-changing doctrine of God's Word. What makes a great church? <clears throat> That's an important question. What does Christ Presbyterian Church aspire to be? Some churches aspire to a large membership. Want to attract people. Have a large building with a huge congregation. When I was in seminary, I was assigned to a very large church in Atlanta. I had to attend there for several months. This was a church where people wanted to be. It was filled with important people, people of wealth, people of power. But after several months, I had not heard enough of the gospel in that church to save anyone. The gospel was never defined. The gospel was never preached. Large church, thousands of people. But it was not a great church as scripture defines a great church. Some churches aspire to be culturally relevant. That's what makes us great. If we are in tune with the culture, we speak to the culture. I visited another church for some time during seminary in Atlanta that was speaking to every prominent issue of the 1960s. Every current event was always addressed. I think the minister got his topic every week from the front page or op-ed page of the newspaper or from Time Magazine. They attracted, turned on, and tuned in people. It was a large church. They were like cause movies that you see today. This bothers me. I want to go to a movie and see a great plot, great acting, good movie, good story. But then you walk out in the theater and you say, that was a cause movie. They were, they were speaking to some issue. Well, that's like it was in this church in Atlanta. There was some gospel there, but the main issue was not the gospel. It was always some cause, current cause. So what makes a great church? Sometimes I hear people say, I go there for the music. Now, some people say that, and they mean they speak, they're speaking of a church that produces classical and more formal Christian music. Some people say that, and they mean the church is, that church is on the cutting edge of contemporary music. And we know 
that a biblical church must have music. Wherever Jesus goes, we've said it over and over again, wherever Jesus goes, he will bring poetry. He'll bring music. He'll bring beauty. But if music alone defines the greatness of the church, then the Mormon tabernacle qualifies as a great church. And it's certainly not a gospel church. In the passage before us, Paul lays out the first essential of a great church. He's speaking to his protege, the young pastor, Timothy. He's writing him a letter. And as we look at this, I want us to see first, as we look at this passage, I want us to see an impassioned plea. Paul, put it in context, Paul is in jail in Rome writing this letter to Timothy. Timothy is in Ephesus, a church where Paul once served for several years. Paul in Rome is in jail. He thinks it's probable that he will not get out of jail except to be taken out to the Appian Way and be beheaded. How do we know this? Look at 2 Timothy 4, 6, and 7. It's on your scripture sheet. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the truth. That's a man that's departing. After those words, he urges Timothy to come to Rome immediately. He says it four times. Look at verse 9. Do your best to come to me soon. Verse 11. Get Mark and bring him with you. Verse 13. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas. Also the books. And then verse 21. Do your best to come before winter. I want to see you, Timothy. I'm not going to live much longer. I will be executed here. So in this letter, he's sending Timothy his last words. He's not waiting for Timothy to arrive. Timothy may not get there in time. Do your best to get here before winter. So this letter contains Paul's last written words to his son in the faith. In the words we read this morning, we read his directive. Before he said, come to me. When I talk about an impassioned plea, it was not come to me soon. That was a plea, but that was not the impassioned plea. What What did he say to him in this letter? The last of this letter. What does he say that is an impassioned plea? You read it this morning. Look at chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. 
He says, I charge you. Now, he's not giving advice here. He's not giving counsel. He says, I charge you. It's more than a last instruction. He charges Timothy to what? Timothy, you preach the word. He commanded him to this duty. Not only that, he said, I'm charging you. Did you see that? In the presence of God. And then he says, I'm charging you in the presence of Jesus. And just in case you don't know, you've forgotten who Jesus is. He's the one that's going to judge the living and the dead. This is a solemn charge. He's calling on the Father and Christ to witness this charge that he's giving this young man. It's like they're standing before the throne of God and Paul is saying to him, Timothy, you preach the word. I think that's exactly would be Paul's message to us, to Christ Christian Church. You want to be a great church? Whatever else you do, you preach the word. What was the charge to the Old Testament prophets? Preach the word of God. The Old Testament prophets came saying, Thus saith the Lord. That's what the church ought to be saying. That's what Christ Presbyterian Church should be saying to Fayette County. Thus saith the Lord. We didn't have a dream. It wasn't written on a wall. Here it is. It stands eternal. It cannot be moved. It's absolute truth. In every generation. What did Jesus say? Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Preach the word. Now maybe you're saying, well, John, you're preaching to yourself. You're a preacher. Where's Tyler? He conveniently, he conveniently missed this. COVID. Luke came walking in with COVID and then through the family. Tyler's the only one that doesn't have it. But it's not just about preachers, folks. Go home today and read Acts 20. Don't forget that. Just write it down, put it down. Your Acts 20, read it. Great, great chapter. Paul is on his way back to Jerusalem. He's finished his last church planting venture. His third, he's been on, he's been, had three church planting ventures that took him all around the Mediterranean. He's headed home to Jerusalem. He stops by Miletus, which is the seaport for Ephesus, the city where the city where Timothy is now. And Paul stops at Miletus and he calls the elders from Ephesus to come to him, come see him. And he it's a, it's a passionate scene. Read it. He tells the, these elders, he, they're dear to him. He knows them by the, they're on a first name basis. He was there when they were appointed. And he's come back. And he says, this will probably be the last time you see me. So again, it's a, these are last words. And what does he say in verses 26 through 28? In Acts 20. It's there on your scripture sheet. Therefore I testify to you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all. Well, how's he innocent from the blood of all those Ephesians? For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. What is that? The word of God. 
pay careful attention to yourselves. And he says, I preach the word. You pay, ter- you, you pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit, not Paul, the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, take care of the church of God, which he obtained with his blood. And now I commend you, look, and now, verse 32, now I commend you to God and to what? The word of his grace. He said, you take care of the church. Your first duty is you guard that pulpit. Make sure it's dominated by the word of God. It's not only the minister that God will hold responsible for what comes out of that pulpit. He'll hold the elders. He'll hold the officers of the church responsible. I'm so thrilled that Christ Presbyterian Church has Tyler and Bill and Mike and Blake. If I stood here this morning, even John Sartell, if I stood here this morning, and said something that was not the word of God, that was a blatant contradiction, they wouldn't wait for the end of the service. I can tell you they would stand where they were and say, John, you come down. But why must this be the mark, the characteristic of a great church? Why is that? He tells us there, The second point is this. I want you to see the primary and supreme value of the word of God. What's the great value of the word of God? Why should it be preached? Look at 2 Timothy 3, 14 and 15. As for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which which are able to make you wise For salvation. What's the greatest value of God's word? Salvation comes through the word of God. The salvation described by Blake in our Sunday school class this morning. It comes through the word of God and only through the word of God. Who told you about Jesus? Who told you that you were a sinner and you needed a savior? Whoever it was, they got it from scripture. They got it from the Bible. There's not another place that you can find it. It's, that's the original source of salvation. To neglect the word of God is to neglect your own salvation. Parents, to neglect the word of God in your home is to neglect your children's salvation. In 1 Timothy, not 2 Timothy. This is on your scripture. In 1 Timothy 4, verse 16, he tells Timothy, Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Why? Keep a close watch on yourself on the doctrine. Why? Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Whatever comes out of this pulpit, it better be the word of God. Because that's the only thing that will save the preacher. And it's the only thing that will save those who are hearing. My greatest fear is that a church where I've served 
your people will go and they won't hear God's word. I once sat, was in a denomination that was moving away from the word of God. I knew that there would be a division in that church, in that denomination. I knew folks would leave just over this issue. And I would watch men come before the local presbytery to be examined. They'd graduated from seminary. And they were coming to be examined. And it was very obvious. They didn't believe that Jesus was the incarnate Son of God. The seminaries where they went had moved away from God's Word. They didn't believe in the miracles of Christ. They didn't believe in the resurrection. You know what was bad? It was so awful. As I said and watched this, those men didn't know Jesus. They did not know Christ. That's not my judgment. That's what they were saying. Because they believed in Jesus, but it wasn't the Jesus of the Gospels. He was, Jesus was simply a great man. We needed to heed the Sermon on the Mount. He was a great prophet. But what was worse was not only that person was lost. That person was going to a church and preached to 50 people, preached to 100 people, preached to 200 people, preached to 300 people, preached to 500 people. And those people would never hear the gospel. That's why scripture is important. That's why preaching God's word is important. In mission conferences, we often hear about this people group or that people group, and they've never heard the gospel. And we want to send the gospel to, and that's what we ought to be about. Now, let me ask you a question. We must go to those people groups. Let me ask you a question. How many people are sitting in Protestant churches, Presbyterian churches, Episcopal churches, Lutheran churches, Baptist churches, all across this country, and they're sitting there this morning, and they think, as they sing the doxology, they think they will be saved by their good works. They think that God loves them anyway, and they don't need the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. One of my mentors served in the area as a pastor in Tazewell County, Virginia, where I was headed. He'd actually been a pastor of that church, but he had also been a pastor of a church in a nearby town. And this man was a godly, saintly man. Beautiful, intellectual, and studied under the father of modern liberalism, Rudolf Bultmann, in Germany. But he had remained solid. And Dr. Liston said, John, it's probable that when you go to this church and preach, 80 to 
of your congregation. They don't know the gospel and they don't know Christ. See, how many people are thinking like that today? Christ Presbyterian Church can easily become that. It's so easy. An impassioned plea. The primary and supreme value of God's word, it's salvation. There's only one way you're going to stand before God one day. And say, who can bring a charge against me? For Christ has died. That's the only way. Thirdly, I want you to see the life-ordering power of God's word. Look at 1 Timothy 3, 16 17. Most of us know this by heart. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be completely equipped for every good work. He's saying there, don't, don't get lost down among the words, stand back. He's saying there that he gave the word of God to order our entire lives from birth to death and everything that we do. Not only what we do in church, but what we do in all of our lives. That's what the word of God is about. It not only teaches us salvation, it teaches us a way to live. It's profitable for teaching, for proof, correction, training. Training in how to love, training in how to work, training in how to play, training in how to enjoy God's creation, training in how to learn, how to think, how to be a friend, how to be a wife, how to be a husband, how to be an employer, how to be an employee. You see, we have this proclivity. To, to put down this list and say, if you do this and this and this, this is how you live a Christian life. This is how you live a Christian life. You, go, you, you, just, you just make your list. Look at, listen to this. We're, we're near the end. So bear with me. Stick with me. Listen to this. In 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 5. This is back in 1 Timothy again. He says, now the Spirit expressly says that in the later times, and that's the time in the, latter day, in the latter days, that's the time between Jesus' ascension and Jesus' return. In the later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Through the insincerity of liars, whose consciences are seared, they forbid marriage. They say, here, you know, here's a way to live a Christian life, and they, they forbid marriage. Or they require abstinence from some foods. Or they require that you dress a certain way. Or you don't wear makeup or whatever. There's always been the, we, we make our list. When I was growing up, the way you lived a Christian life was you didn't curse, you didn't smoke, and you didn't drink, and you didn't hang around people that did. That was the list. After I became a Christian, I grew up in a dichotomy. This, I can, I, I, it was so terrible. I was a Christian, 
But the dichotomy was this. Here was a world where I went to school, I played with my friends, I ate and I slept, went sled riding into winter, hiking during the summer. And here was my Christian life, and that was a life in the church, reading my Bible, going to Sunday school. And there was not a relationship between these two worlds. I couldn't get them together as a Christian. I was aware something was missing, but I could not understand what it was. The discouraging thing about it was that I was, I was taught this dichotomy by the evangelical church that I attended because the evangelical church was that way all over the country. Here was her Christian life. Here was her life out in the world. And the two just didn't meet. I spent my early Christian life trying to live in a Christian bubble. It was a monastery without walls. And then in my late years in college, my last years in college, I began to read the great prophet of the last half of the 20th century, Francis Schaeffer. And God used him to bring the life-altering theology in the life-changing and the life-ordering theology of God's Word to my life. I learned from him the truth of the statement made by the great Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper. Kuyper said, memorize this, Kuyper said this, there's not a single square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not say, mine. There's no square inch in your life anywhere. There's no square inch in this universe where God doesn't say, mine. I learned the truth of what Paul meant when he said in Colossians 3.17, and whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. I learned there was no dichotomy. It was alive. The dichotomy was alive. I was living under the reign of Christ. Whether I was at a dining table, I learned when I sat down at me that God made strawberries and cream and he gave us taste buds to enjoy it. And for years, I didn't have a God that said those kind of things to me. But he did in his word. In English class, on the football field, mowing the lawn, hiking with friends, sitting by a fire, reading, or sitting in church, working or playing what? I was about to be about Christ serving him. That's what God's word says to us. Today, as a whole, the evangelical Christians cannot see service to Christ apart from the church. I used to go to lunch once every two months with the pastors of the six largest churches in East Memphis. 
They were all, they were Baptists, Methodists, Presbyterians, independent. They were all godly men. They were all godly preachers. One day I said, I'm curious. What percent of your congregation understands that in their work in the world, whether the lawyers, doctors, teachers, janitors, I don't care, that they're to be serving Christ in their vocation. By that, I don't mean they're to walk around with a Bible telling people about Jesus. No. I mean that they're actually functioning out there in the world as salt and light. They're serving Christ. I said, how many of your congregations understand that? Are in your congregation? You know what the answer was? 10%. That means that 90% of the evangelical congregations in these large churches didn't know that they were living in this dichotomy. You know that the, the average man or woman works 90,000 hours in a vocation over a lifetime? 90,000 hours. If people see their jobs as being disconnected from Christ when they consider those 90,000 hours, if they think that's just, that's not my life, that's not my Christian life. They're thinking 90% of the time, 90,000 hours of my lifetime, uh, Jesus didn't have anything to do with it. I used to ask a question of people that were working. Somebody gave you $5 million. What would you do? Most of them answered, I'd quit work. How sad. They were only working to make money and provide. Totally disconnected. Do you know what the word vocation means? It comes from the Latin word vocari. We, the, they would pronounce it vocari. We'd pronounce it vocari. Vocari. That's where the word, you know what vocari means? To call. It's a calling. It's not slavery. It's not just making money for you. It's a calling. Luther said this. Martin Luther said this. And this was a this was new, and Luther and Calvin got this right, and it was a new message. We don't say it enough in the Protestant church. They connected the work we do with the reign of Christ. The work of monks and priests, this is Luther, the work of monks and priests in God's sight are in no way whatever superior to the works of a farmer laboring in the field or a woman looking after her. Here's my personal testimony. This is what I've been giving in the last few minutes. I can't remember when I was born again. I became aware that Jesus had died for my sins when I was about nine years old. But I can remember when the great theology of God's word, the life-ordering theology, the life-ordering word of God, that Paul was, which Paul was speaking to Timothy, I can remember when that invaded my life. 
And it changed. It turned my life upside down. There wasn't a part of my life. It didn't change in effect. Everything changed. I learned that there was no part of my life separate from the reign and rule of Christ. Preach the word, Timothy. Why? Because it's the way of salvation and it is the way to live your life totally. That's why preaching the word of God is what makes a great church. We've heard this testimony from the word of God this morning. That's what God's word has said. Now we come to the table, which we learned last week. This was an oath signed with the blood of God himself. He took this oath saying, my word is true. This is so you'll know my word is true. What you've heard this morning from 2 Timothy 3, this table swears to it, to the truth of it. That's why we're coming to the table now. That's why we come after every sermon knowing that this table confirms the word of God that's been heard. This covenant table is a blood oath to the truth of God's word. Mike, come and lead us in our prayer as we come to the table.